Welcome to HIV Unmuted, the IAS International AIDS Society's podcast. I'm your host, Femi Okay. In late 2019, a new pandemic, COVID-19, emerged and changed the world as we knew it. Countries went into lockdown, health services were disrupted, economies struggled. And what about the other pandemic, HIV? Access to HIV prevention and treatment decreased as a result of COVID-19. Yet at the same time, communities and healthcare providers adapted. The development of a COVID-19 vaccine has allowed a return to almost normal life for some. But even now, not everyone has access to a COVID-19 vaccine. By June 2022, only 17% of people in low-income countries have received at least one dose. This is a sadly familiar story for people living with HIV. Between 1997 and 2006, an estimated 12 million people from the continent of Africa died because HIV treatment was too expensive. HIV patients are still dying to a big extent, like before the introduction of ARVs. ARV drugs are available, diagnostics are available. So the question is, why HIV patients are still dying? And what about outbreaks like monkeypox? Will we continue to have the same issues of unequal access to vaccines and treatment? Later in the episode, the World Health Organization's Dr. Mike Ryan and Dr. Meg Doherty discuss why these parallels are showing up again and again, and whether we have learned the critical lessons from COVID-19 and HIV. But first, Patricia Acero takes us back to the 1990s in Kenya, when she just found out she was living with HIV and had no access to treatment. I only knew that HIV was killing people and people are becoming very thin. Patricia found out she was living with HIV at the birth of her daughter. Then he said, Patricia, I'm sorry. Uh, the blood we took, uh, you have AIDS. So it, it was quite a shock. It was quite a shock for me to get to, for it to sink. And when I got home, I just threw the child to my mom and said I was going to die. So that is all I knew, that if you have it, then you are dead. So I stopped eating. Uh, I would cry for days. And I would try to see what of my sins could have contributed to this. Because if you go to church, they would tell us that um, it's those who have sinned, yeah? And fallen short of the glory of God who could get such a kind of diseases, and it was just for sinful people like uh, sex workers, gay men. At this time, HIV treatment was prohibitively expensive. Doctors like Eric Gomer, an infectious disease specialist with Médecins Sans Frontières, who arrived in South Africa in the mid-1990s, knew just how expensive it was. One treatment for one person for one year was between 10 and 12,000 US dollars per person per year for just one person. In 98, there were 5.6 million estimated people living with HIV. This was more than the national budget for South Africa, so impossible to, to do it. And it explains probably the denialism. Due to the limited treatment available, Eric was forced to make impossible decisions about who lived and who died. So there was no way we could afford this treatment. So we had a selection committee. The one we didn't take with this so-called selection committee 
would inevitably die. We tried to make it as as open and democratic, so involving people from the community, people living with HIV, nurses from the different clinics. And basically, uh, we would take one out of three or four candidates for treatment. We were basically a dead tribunal, but we had no other option. Uh, uh, MSF could not afford more than uh, what they did. This took an emotional toll on Eric and his colleagues. It was very difficult because I personally knew several of them. You are faced with the decision, sorry, it's not going to be for you. Bye-bye, we cannot do anything for you. It was emotionally extremely difficult, mostly for the nurses in the, in the clinics. You can imagine patients begging them, you know, please, please save me. Lack of access to treatments wasn't the only problem. Rampant stigma left Eric begging nurses for rooms in the hospital to treat people living with HIV. The nurses were reluctant because they were scared. Eh? To be honest, they were really scared that they were, we're all going to get infected. I, I remember they told me that. And HIV meant death inevitably. And so that actually I begged them, can you give me please at least two rooms and I remember the response was, yeah, if you want, you can have two rooms, but you will never have anybody queuing in front of those rooms because stigma is too high here. And people, you know, you don't know the mentality. So finally, we started. After uh, a couple of weeks, it was packed, packed with people who had heard, including coming from other township, who had heard that uh, suddenly there was an option some light at the end of the tunnel and I can tell you the people were coming in a very advanced stage you know brought in a wheelchair wheelbarrow uh, carried on the on the back of their relatives despite the stigma Eric wasn't the only one advocating for treatment. We started doing advoc- a lot of advocacy in 2000. So medication has started trickling in. By 2003, at least, a few hundreds of people were on treatment of generics. Like Patricia, Eric knew the answer lay in access. He learned a hard lesson with his first attempt to bring treatment into South Africa. The drugs were seized. After that, Eric used covert means to bring HIV medication into the country, and the results were staggering. As far as I remember, 150 patients, very advanced stage, and uh, the survival rate was amazing, something like uh, close to 90%. So, yeah, that's exactly what we wanted to, to, to demonstrate. It's feasible. In an environment like here, it's feasible. Access to HIV treatment changed lives for so many people living with HIV. When people start getting medicine, then... Um the immunity starts becoming stable, and then they are not getting opportunistic infections. So that means that they are able to take care of themselves. They are able to take care of their extended families. Both Kenya and South Africa went on to scale up their HIV treatment programs. Yet today, we see the same issues coming up again. This time, it's a lack of access to COVID-19 vaccines for many low- and middle-income countries. So the issue of cost came back again, in great comparison with what we were seeing uh, when we could not have access to HIV drugs. We have not learned any lessons at all, because my honest opinion, the West behaved like Africa did not matter at all, and we were not part of the global community. Again, we are back there. We have the problem, but because 
we live in Africa, we cannot have access. Our countries are not able to produce these drugs, so we cannot have access to them. We were at the mercy again of the West. Patricia and Eric described how harsh it was to have no access to HIV medication in the 90s and 2000s. Why haven't we learned the critical lessons that the work of Patricia and Eric and so many others have taught us? And why, in 2022, are we continuing to leave some people behind with COVID-19 vaccines? Now we speak to our next guest from WHO, the World Health Organization, to try to understand why even when we have the science and means to deal with outbreaks, we continue to have unequal outcomes. And what of new outbreaks like monkeypox? Will that response be unequal too? We are here with Mike Ryan and Meg Doherty from WHO. Hello, Mike. Hello, Meg. Can you tell us what you do, please? I am the director of Global HIV, Hepatitis and STI programs. I am the executive director for the WHO Emergencies Program. Meg, what parallels do you see between the inequitable HIV treatment access in the 2000s and COVID-19 vaccine inequity today? Mike and I both lived through a period of time where it took 10 years to get HIV treatment. You know, when we first learned about triple therapy, it was in 1996. And I remember being at that meeting and I'm like, this is amazing. We're going to be able to treat HIV. It's not a death sentence. But how many years did it take us to get antiretrovirals to all the people in Africa who needed it? We now have over 26 million people on treatment. But it took too long, and there was that need to sort of call out the inequities. From my experiences in Ethiopia, we felt like we were doing a huge amount of work to scale up. But then just look at what's happened in COVID in the last 18 months. We have how many new self-tests or tests, how many new (laughs) diagnostics and treatments, and that sort of speed in innovation and science and the ability to move those items around the world needs to be captured for, for HIV, needs to be captured for TB, needs to be captured for hepatitis. So in many ways, when the world wants to make an effort and and really change the trajectory of an infection, the scientists, the experts, they know how to do it. But it's just that in that sort of moral imperative just doesn't come around all the time. So for me, it's really important to figure out how do we keep that moral imperative for all the other infections out there, along with the pandemics that we're seeing. Speaking of new outbreaks, Meg, can you tell us more about monkeypox? Monkeypox is a virus that's been around for years, for decades, and the transmission is through face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, skin-to-skin, mouth-to-skin contact. So it's really about contact between lesions from one person to another person. And what we know in over 58 countries now reporting cases, plus even in the countries in Africa, that this may be in social networks, particularly in sexual networks, particularly among gay, bisexual, and men who have sex with men. And we have a debt of thanks to give to the community of men who have sex with men because they they often are very connected with their healthcare providers. And when they identified something that was not usual, they went and sought healthcare and provided photos, have worked in the community, have provided their stories for learning and research. So. In many ways, I think we're learning about this as as the outbreak goes on. Is monkeypox a sexually transmitted infection? 
think it's hard. It this is transmitting through sexual networks and through close contact when with sexual activity. Is it a classical sexually transmitted infection, meaning are particles of the virus or is active virus being transmitted through sexual fluids? We don't have that evidence yet. Can you tell us what WHO has been doing to proactively address stigma around monkeypox? And how do we make sure monkeypox isn't stigmatized? The big issue we wanted to address right from the beginning is we we certainly didn't want to make mistakes like we did in the 1990s of further stigmatizing, saying this is only in men who have sex with men. It is not a gay disease. And we were quite sure this was sort of the tip of the iceberg, that we would see this in other communities and that we needed to be sure that we were giving enough information so that people would have awareness of what the risks are, what the lesions might look like and also to protect themselves and protect others. So WHO has been working with Interpride and Pride on risk communications and community engagement, making sure these messages are going out through social media networks, and really taking both a um, personal responsibility but also a community responsibility approach. Mike, do you see any of the access issues we spoke about earlier also applying to monkeypox? There's a huge potential for this to happen. and It really, in many ways, depends what trajectory this outbreak takes. Unlike in COVID, I think an important point, the, the countries that currently hold, for example, vaccines have actually released back many of their contracts to the manufacturer, who can then distribute it to other countries who need it. I actually think we're in a better place than we were. And I have to say this, and I would like to put this on the record because it's something I've never had a chance to say to the HIV AIDS community. We are building on the shoulders of giants. The equity that we managed to achieve in COVID has been built on the activism of HIV and AIDS. The the desire to do the right thing in monkeypox is also built on that advocacy and it's built on that activism. Uh, and I think uh, the world owes a debt, uh, not only for the solutions in HIV AIDS to the, to the community affected by that disease most, uh, more than any, more than any other, uh, but uh, we now owe that same debt of gratitude for the same approaches on equity and inclusion, on, on getting rid of stigma, on, on dealing and, and, and countering misinformation and disinformation. We have so much to learn from the HIV AIDS community who really understand how to deal with these types of diseases in which we need a very sensitive, a very measured approach in which we don't amplify stigma while we intervene to stop the spread of a disease. Why did WHO recently make the decision not to declare monkeypox a public health emergency of international concern? Good question. The committee didn't say it wasn't an important event and they didn't say it wasn't an event requiring urgent and collective response. They were very clear. They just felt that the disease at this moment had not reached, fully met those criteria in terms of severity, in terms of uh, unusualness. Are we only preparing for pandemics that affect higher income countries? Is that a political choice? I think we're playing Russian roulette at the moment in terms of uh, uh, many of these emerging zoonoses or endemic zoonoses. And and absolutely, uh, we are not so concerned about monkeypox because it's in West and Central Africa. It affects poor people. And if you look at the research on monkeypox, a lot of it was directed at keeping an eye on orthopox viruses in case smallpox ever came back. Uh, So while the researchers who work on monkeypox are superb people, a lot of the funding that came in there wasn't necessarily about getting rid of a disease in Africa. It was about keeping an eye on a disease that might have a major 
major implication uh, in other parts of the world. So there's always been this self-interest around infectious disease. And we see the same. I mean, when we go back to some of the biggest investments in infectious disease control in the 19th century were made by, by militaries because they wanted to be able to keep their soldiers safe when they went into the tropics. So you've seen that political sort of tactical investment in infectious disease control has always come with economic interest. It's always come with colonial interest. So the real, this is the question mark, will human ingenuity and human fairness win out over greed and exploitation? What does a failure to prepare for pandemics in low and middle income countries mean? We ignore these endemic zoonotic uh, diseases at our peril. We ignore emerging zoonosis at our peril. And what we've seen is uh, risk anywhere in the world is a risk everywhere in the world. There was a time when a disease happened in a far off place and it would happen, it would burn itself out. And more often than not, it would never become a problem for anyone else. We've now seen that a small cluster of disease anywhere in the world can reach anywhere in the world 24 hours later and we can have a problem. It is human behaviour, human exploitation of environments, unsafe hospitals, favelas and, and, and overcrowded peri-urban slums without proper water, sanitation or vector control. It's that ability for disease to move around the world and our unwillingness to share the products of our innovation. We've never been, ever, ever, ever been at a point where we can develop countermeasures so quickly against disease. And yet, we've never been at a point where we're so unfair in the way we distribute those. Meg, is this why we have not ended AIDS as a public health threat? It's a really sad question because, just as Mike was saying, we have the tools, we have the means, we have the community, we have advocacy, we have outrage, and still we're not achieving our targets and goals for ending AIDS as a public health threat. We'll talk about the fact that there's political will there that there are certain parts of the world that have not embraced the full approach to ending AIDS, meaning the prevention, the treatment, knowing one's status. Once we can have a community of people with access to treatment and a suppressed viral load, we should be able to interrupt transmission. And we've seen in certain parts of the world, the UK, Australia, that when you pair up the testing and the treatment and capturing all so that they know their status, plus you give opportunities for prevention, we're starting to see the number of new cases go down. We must change the trajectory of new infections. And I think oral prep, depivirine ring, long-acting injectable prep are going to make a difference. Uh, and WHO will be releasing new guidelines on prevention and long-acting cabotegravir at the International AIDS Conference in Canada. Is there any hope for an HIV vaccine? The, the mRNA vaccines that started out with work in HIV and developing those for HIV that has been transferred over to being readily utilized and, and a huge game changer or a huge intervention for COVID, they're now starting two trials of, of different kinds of um, mRNA vaccines for HIV. If those come on board, and if they're neutralizing, I think we really need a neutralizing uh, vaccine that is a vaccine that actually protects a person. So if a person becomes and encounters the virus like HIV or any other virus, that they have already developed enough antibodies to protect them so they won't become infected at all. That could be an answer to ending AIDS in, our, in my lifetime, I would say. 
Can we end AIDS without a vaccine? Do I think we can do it without a vaccine? I think we can get pretty close. I, I remain hopeful. Communities are integral to that hope Meg talks about. Our next guest, Rina Jamnamwasuk, has experienced issues of unequal access and stigma firsthand. Like Patricia and Eric, she's creating on-the-ground solutions. Rina's experience as a transgender woman gives her a deep understanding of the issues she works to address. She is a program manager for transgender health at the Institute of HIV Research and Innovation in Bangkok, Thailand. Rina was instrumental in establishing the Tangerine Clinic, the first transgender-led health clinic in the region. When COVID hit, she continued to find solutions for issues that COVID-19 worsened. Um, I think it's really uh, had negative um, impact to our transgender client, especially during the first wave of the COVID-19. So I think it's really um, limiting their access to the HIV services at that time. We were able to rapidly adapt our service provision. We quickly developed a standard operating procedures on telehealth that healthcare providers can have virtual consultation with the clients for any um, clinic visits or any other follow-up visit. And we also develop and work with the postal delivery companies and agencies to do the ARVs or PrEP or even hormones medications, postal delivery. And even we also working with the Grab Bike in Bangkok to do the medications delivery. Rina and the Tangerine Clinic have pivoted at the local level to address the issues that globally continue to hamper our pandemic responses. We have to adapt ourselves to the new pandemic or to any challenging situation that is coming in the future. And this is an opportunity for the clients to be empowered of their health. They can control their health in their own hands. Rina and her team took the adversity of COVID-19 as an opportunity to innovate. We can and must learn lessons from communities on how to adapt and navigate issues of stigma and unequal access that parallel pandemics bring to the fore. Community engagement is very important. We should um, consider or take the community engagement at every stage of our work. This spirit of collaboration shows us how to navigate future pandemics. Communities have the possibility of doing mobilization fast. Communities have the answers, but nobody thinks of working with the communities fast. It is the scientists, the doctors, the clinicians, the world leaders, and they forget that the communities have the answers. That if we work together, then we are able to get there. That is what is lacking. Undoubtedly, pandemics heighten issues of unequal access. Whether it is life-saving HIV treatment or COVID-19 vaccines, we must do better. While we may not have learned all these lessons yet, promisingly, there are hints we may be getting on the right track. On the 10th of June, 2022, the White House convened a call with representatives from around 70 community groups to address the recent monkeypox outbreak. Peter Staley, a longtime leading HIV activist said, imagine if the White House had convened a similar group in 1981, how different things might have been for HIV. If you're listening to this episode before 29th of July 2022 and want to learn more about issues of unequal access, COVID-19, monkeypox and the latest scientific breakthroughs in the HIV response, 
attend the 24th International AIDS Conference, AIDS 2022, virtually or in person, in Montreal. I'm Femi Okay for the IAS, International AIDS Society's podcast, HIV Unmuted. And you can't keep us quiet.